Go ahead and turn your Bibles to James chapter 1. James chapter 1 will be in verses 26 and 27 today. James chapter 1. Well, I hope you've had a, a good Thanksgiving time with loved ones. We have an exciting December planned with Journey to Bethlehem, our Christmas Eve services. I'll have also a special message at the end of uh, December that I'm, I'm looking forward to. Uh, and so I, I pray that if you're just visiting here, just trying us out, pray that you'll, you'll spend December with us. So we're in James chapter 1, and we've talked about a lot of different things through James chapter 1. So uh, he's talked about joy and growth and trials, wisdom and trials through asking in faith. He's talked about the trials of poverty and wealth, trials of temptation. Then he spoke on good gifts from the immutable or the unchanging God. And then he got very specific about the trial of anger. And then in verses 20 through 25, he described being a doer of the word and not a hearer only deceiving yourself. And today we're talking about organized religion. Now, you may have heard this if you're a Christian, where someone says, I don't believe in organized religion. Or maybe there's someone here today that says, I don't believe in organized religion. And so we're addressing four reasons that I believe sometimes people hate religion. And here's the, in my opinion, a terrifying part of this is that sometimes there are kids who we consider church kids that are raised in a church home and they grow up to hate the church of God and they hate the organized aspect of religion. They would say, I don't like religion and I want to talk today about why. Because there's some things that we can't get around and the first is this, that organized religion is biblical. Uh, I have some of these in your notes. Hebrews chapter 10 is a famous passage on this. It says in verse 24, and let us consider one another in order to provoke love and good works, not neglecting to gather together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging each other, and all the more as you see the day approaching. It is biblical to gather together. Sometimes we say the church is not a building, it's a people. And while that's true, sometimes we, we have a misapplication of that where we'd say, therefore, I don't need to gather together even in a building. Now, we don't need a building, but it is biblical to gather together. So the church indeed is a people, but specifically it is a people gathered together. 1 Corinthians chapter 14 uh, talks about the church as well, and this is in a section about spiritual gifts and how to use them in the church. And it says, since God is not a God of disorder but of peace, as in all the churches of the saints. Verse 40 says, but everything is to be done decently and in order. Order, organization is biblical. Perhaps my favorite on this, and we could go through Romans 12, 1 Corinthians 12, Ephesians 4, or Matthew 16, 18. There's a lot of different passages that talk to this topic. I think my favorite on this is Acts 20, verse 28. It says, be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has appointed you as overseers, that it is biblical to have overseers or authorities, which implies that there's going to be some sort of organization. And it says to shepherd the church of God. So it's God's church. He appoints overseers to shepherd, but it's God's church. And it finishes by saying, which he purchased with his own blood. God owns religion. He owns the organization of it. He calls us to organize religion. So why sometimes do people hate organized religion? When a person says, I don't believe in organized religion, I wonder if you've ever thought, what are they talking about? Because 
I'll, I'll say what they're not talking about, and I've answered this probably sometimes in too snarky of a, a retort, saying, do you like disorganized religion? And that's not what they mean, is it? It's not the organization side of religion that they, that they don't like. They have organization in all sorts of aspects of their lives. They are in a society that is organized. They drive on the proper side of the road. They sometimes obey the speed limit. Uh, they at least slow down when they see a police officer ahead, right? They have some sort of organization. They have their kids in different activities where, where there's organized sports or organized band or organized school. They go to places that have menus that even the food that we can order and the prices they select are organized. It's not organization that people have a problem with. What is it then? We have to have this kind of lordship, um, honest starting point. This isn't the answer that people are going to want to hear. I have to start with this, but don't worry, we're going to talk about different things. Sometimes people just have a lordship problem. That sometimes they're just going to hate Christianity no matter what. John chapter 15 verse 18 says this, if the world hates you, understand that it hated me before it hated you. So that's an aspect of it. That sometimes people will say they hate organized religion, but really they hate Christianity. They hate the idea of a God over them that would say there's anything that they shouldn't do. We have to start there. That's not going to be the, the points we're going to go through, but we have to recognize that, that sometimes no matter what we did, no matter what a church looked like, if at any point there is a God in the equation that tells them that something is wrong, they're not going to want it. We have to acknowledge that part. But what about people who do like the idea of God and yet sometimes hate organized religion? At this time where um, I was going through a series and, and there was this young lady that it was, it was particularly impacting her. And we had this session afterward, after the sermon, where uh, I did kind of a follow-on session where people could ask questions and, and dig a little deeper if they wanted to. Other people were having a time of fellowship, and, and people who wanted to dig a little deeper could come to this, this session afterward. And it was completely unrelated, so I don't remember exactly how she brought it up, but she had seen my family, and she said, how can you get it where your kids don't hate Christianity? And I heard so much behind that, and, and I, I asked some follow-up questions, but, but she was a church kid. She'd been raised by two Christian parents that were often in church, that, that would bring her to church, that would serve, that would give, that would do Bible studies, that would lead different things. And, and she comes to me and asks this question, how can you get it where your kids don't hate church? There's all sorts of implications in that, isn't there? There's implications about, about I may bring my child to church, do all the right things, or I feel like all the right things, have them in the right places, expose them to the Word of God, and then at some point something's going to disconnect. And they, they have this almost hatred or, or this regret toward church or, or, or feel like it's almost an opposition to them or that it's offended them. So what do we do? What do we do? How do we respond to this idea of people who hate religion? I'm going to give you four reasons that people hate religion. And I hope as we go through this that you'll see it as a moment of self-reflection. Because if we are going to offend people as Christians, we want it to simply be with the truth and no intent to offend, but simply an intent to tell the truth. So let's look at James chapter 1 
And look at verse 26 with me, please. It says, If anyone thinks he is religious without controlling his tongue, his religion is useless and he deceives himself. The first reason people hate religion is when we have uncontrolled speech. When we have uncontrolled speech. If anyone thinks he is religion without controlling his tongue, or maybe you have a translation that says without bridling his tongue. And and the message here, and I'm not going to delve too deeply into the idea of the words we say because James chapter 3 is just a, a brilliant chapter, and so I look forward to diving into that later. But I'll speak on it briefly. This idea of bridling, it's it's comes from from horses, that that it's part of the headgear that helps control the animal. And so in the CSB, which is the translation I read from, it goes to the meaning of it. It says without controlling their tongue. But but picture that idea of of a bridle on a horse that you're able to guide and control and direct and steer the animal. And so listen to what this says. If you think you're religious without controlling your tongue, your religion is useless. Now, this word useless is an interesting one. If you were to go through different parts, and maybe your translation says vain or empty. If you were to go to different parts of the New Testament where it talks about idolatry, and it talks about false or vain or empty idols, it's the same root word. So think about that for a second. If I see myself as a religious person, and yet I don't control my tongue then I have the same empty religion or the same, uh, the same application of my religion as if my religion were hooked to a false idol. It's the same value, the same impact, the same worth. If you think you're religious without controlling your tongue, your religion is useless. And then he says, and he deceives himself. Now, he said the word deceived a lot. Look with me at verse 14. So you have to look up in your Bible, maybe turn a page. James 1.14, it describes a deceived person. Verse 13 had just said that when we go through a trial, we can't say we're tempted by God. And he tells us in verse 14 how we're tempted away. He says, but each person is tempted when he is drawn away and enticed by his own evil desire. Then after desire is conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is fully grown, it gives birth to death. So this section on the specific trial of sin, in verse 14, he describes the self-deception. That I could think I'm going to something that is good, something that brings me pleasure, but I'm deceiving myself because I'm actually engaging in something that has death as its end. Now look at verse 16. It says, don't be deceived, my brothers and sisters. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. And so as we talk through this, it's drawing this comparison to the person who would say, God allowed me to be tempted. And he says, no, don't be deceived. Everything good is from God. And then look down at verse 22. It says, but be doers of the word and not hearers only deceiving yourselves. There's that same word, the deception. And it's not that you're deceiving someone else. It's deceiving ourselves. So verse 26, if anyone thinks he is religious without controlling his tongue, without bridling his tongue, his religion is empty or vain like a false idol. There's nothing behind it. And you're deceiving yourself. Man, that is 
That's a terrifying verse, isn't it? You ever lost control of your tongue? You ever say some things that, that you don't intend or that you haven't thought through the ramifications or you got caught up in the moment? Now, what this isn't saying, it's not saying that you're no longer a Christian. It's saying that in that moment, your religion is empty. And if that moment continues to be just, this is who I am, I just speak my mind. This is who I am, I just don't control my tongue. If that's it, then your religion continues to be empty. Now, because earlier he had said, uh, earlier he had talked about how we are supposed to live for God and we're supposed to accomplish his righteousness. It's in verse 20, he says, for human anger does not accomplish God's righteousness. This whole section is sandwiched in this goal of accomplishing God's righteousness. Now, if the purpose of my religion, the purpose of, of chastening myself, or earlier he talked about removing all moral filth, if the purpose of all of those things is to accomplish God's righteousness, then the person who thinks they're religious, the person who thinks, I'm going to accomplish God's righteousness in this world and doesn't control your tongue, you're not going to accomplish his righteousness. I had this uh, time where I had a coworker, and he and I were in kind of this isolated circumstance where uh, really we, it was kind of like we just had each other. There were, there were other people working, but we were, uh, we were assigned together. And, and so we would go work together, do projects, got to know him pretty well. He, he seemed like a good guy to me, told me he was a believer. And so we talked about things of faith. Didn't have any reason to question his faith. There was one time where uh, we were playing basketball and he threw a basketball at my head, but I deserved it. Um, I had we were playing one-on-one, and I told him that I was a very streaky shooter, and that was honest. And I just had the best game of my life where I hit every shot. And I'm telling you, that doesn't happen to me very often. Usually when I say I'm streaky, I mean the, the cold way. Like, I, I miss, and then I just keep missing. And I just hit everything. And he got so mad because I beat him 21 to 0, and he wasn't a bad player. And usually I wouldn't have been able to do that, and so he threw the ball at me. That's the only time where I thought, huh, maybe. But... <laughs> But other than that, he just seemed like a good, a good Christian guy, and we did a lot of different things together. And then one day I was at work, and there was this other guy there that I knew to be an atheist because I shared the gospel with him. And he said to this other guy, he said, are you just a Christian when Obi's around? Now, he delved into that a little bit because apparently this individual spoke entirely different when I was around. I don't know what he thought he was going to gain. I'm not going to judge him on judgment day. I, I make no difference in, in the, the holiness judgment of him. I don't. And yet he acted different when he was with me than when he was with them. And an atheist, someone who didn't believe, called him out on it. What had happened in that moment? His religion was false in the eyes of the atheist. His purpose of bringing righteousness, God's righteousness to this world, was completely vain at that moment. It, it was spent. It was worthless. His witness was destroyed in the eyes of that atheist because he had seen someone who he saw as a hypocrite. People hate religion when we have uncontrolled speech. If I go back to this thought of this girl that asked, how do you help your kids not hate Christianity. The first thing I want my kids to see is I want them to see that I can control my tongue. That God has changed me in such a way that I'm going to speak differently. I'm going to build people up instead of 
tear them down. I'm going to speak grace when it would be right to speak anger. I want to control my tongue so that my religion isn't empty. Now let's look at verse 27. Pure and undefiled religion before God the Father is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained from the world. That phrase, that pure and undefiled religion, it's a a famous phrase. And even this section using the word religion so many times, it it could probably be confusing to people because when someone who is not a Christian or someone who has become jaded by Christianity, when they think of religion, it's not a positive thing. They don't think of, well, yeah, I just want to be religious. And yet, these verses, God is calling us to be religious, That's what the word he's saying, that this is a goal to to aspire to, to be religious. And so one way we've done it wrong is through our tongue. But a second reason that people hate religion is when we aren't sincere. Pure and undefiled carries with it the implication of sincerity. Now this, when it talks about religion, we're talking about orphans and widows here and keeping unstained from the world. That's not the total definition of religion, but using the themes of the book of James, which he's already talked on and he's going to expand upon later in this book, he gives us these two examples that demonstrate the sincerity of our faith. And one of the greatest examples of pure religion is helping the vulnerable. Pure and undefiled religion before God the Father is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress. And if you were to look through all Scripture, if you were just to do a search on the, the word orphans or to the phrase uh, or the word fatherless, if you were just to do a search in, in some Bible search engine, you'd find that come up numerous times that orphans, widows, or the stranger in your land or the foreigner in your land, that God cares for the vulnerable. Christians are mistaken if, if we just think that we're supposed to get to some point in life where we don't need help from anyone, and so we don't need to care for others. If we don't have a burden for other people, then we ought to question the sincerity of our religion. Pure and undefiled religion before God the Father is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress. Matthew 25, verse 34, this should be in your notes, says this, Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you took me in. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you took care of me. I was in prison, and you visited me. Truly, I tell you, whatever you did, For one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. At our church, we want to be really good at caring for people. Uh, I'll just give you a little of my vision for how I hope uh, that we'll care for people well. And our first line of defense is our Sunday school classes. That as we try to care for brothers and sisters, our Sunday school classes, I want you to be so good at caring for one another. There ought never be a person hurting in your class that you don't reach out to. You don't have to wait for the teacher to tell you to reach out to them. You reach out to them. Every person, if you feel new, if you're a child of God, then you're not new to his kingdom. You're you're not waiting for others to tell you what to do. Care for people. It is a Christian thing to care for people. You don't need to wait till you're a leader of a class 
If you have a group of people and you see someone hurting, care for them. If you feel like your, your class already does it well, then ask, how can you help with that? If you feel like you're a Sunday school class that doesn't do it well, then go talk to your teacher and say, if that's on your heart, say, I would like to be someone who makes sure that we do that well. The first line of defense at Troy First to make sure we're caring for one another ought to be our Sunday school classes. Make that happen. That, that's you. If you're in a Sunday school class, if you're not, I pray that you're in a, you get in a Sunday school class. I pray that you find community, that you find fellowship, that when you have a difficult time, you have a group that will care for you. Second line of defense is our deacons. We have an amazing deacon body who they are so selfless, working behind the scenes, caring for people. And then we have pastors as well. We want to care for people well. We want to do it Christians, deacons, pastors. We want a church filled with people who care for one another. And then we want to be on mission in this community. Our missions team does a phenomenal job of giving us opportunities, and they're going to continue to present other opportunities for us as we go forward in the future. If you see things that, that you just say, I'd like to be part of that, then join. You don't have to be part of everything but if you see something where God lays it on your heart, join. But then you don't have to wait for the church to organize anything to care for people. Is there someone around you that's hurting? Care for them. Maybe God put you in their sphere of influence for just such an occasion, for just a time like this, that you could show them the love of Christ in a way that maybe no one else can because they're not in your position Truly, I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. Or Isaiah chapter 1, verse 16 and 7, God says to Israel through Isaiah, he says, wash yourselves, cleanse yourselves, remove your evil deeds from my sight. Stop doing evil. Learn to do what is good. Pursue justice. Correct the oppressor. Defend the rights of the fatherless. Plead the widow's cause. You could go again and again and again in Scripture and find how God cares for the vulnerable. And if I'm a follower of Jesus Christ, then I must as well. And that means everybody. That doesn't mean you let the people on staff do it. Doesn't mean you just, well, we have deacons, so let's let them do it. Everyone who names the name of Jesus Christ must care for others. This is talking about pure and undefiled religion before God. So, sometimes people hate religion when we aren't sincere. Because we profess faith, but there's no change in our life. That, that I could act all pious and, and worshipful, but the moment someone needs something of help, I close my heart to that person. Sometimes people hate religion because we don't love people. Going back to this young lady's question, how do you get your kids to actually like Christianity or to not hate Christianity? I hope they see that my faith is sincere. I hope they see that I want to love people and I want to serve with gladness. I want to serve not in a way that I just feel like, well, I just have to because this is what Christians do. No, I want to serve because I want to love people. And the third reason people hate religion often is when we confuse behavior with transformation. Look again at verse 27. Pure and undefiled religion before God the Father is this. To look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained from the world. 
Now you have this pure and undefiled religion, and then you have the, the aspect of, of a Christian or a, a believer saying to keep yourself unstained from the world. So using a lot of imagery to be spotless, to be pure. And so here's sometimes the way we go as Christians is, uh, and believe me, holiness matters. But sometimes the way we interpret this is the, almost like the unstained part is the end goal of the Christian life. And what we do is we separate it from the pure and undefiled religion. That's the actual goal. So we want holiness. Holiness matters to God. But sometimes when we interpret this, we separate it from pure and undefiled religion before God. You see, what we do is we forget the goal of holiness. It's to honor God, to please God. I had this friend who, uh, again, a co-worker, and he was raised in a very strict household with a, a, a denomination of Christianity that was very legalistic, meaning that they were very rules-based, oftentimes disassociating the, the what from the why, meaning don't do this, don't do that, don't do that, and never saying why. Never helping a person understand why holy, living a holy life would be pleasing to God and, and wanting to please God because you love God. It's just rules, rules, rules. And that's what it becomes in people's mind that they see this unstained from the world and they don't think about the, the other side of that, the pure and undefiled religion standing before God who loves me so much that he would die to save me, that I love him because he first loved me. So this friend he, he had completely rebelled against Christianity. I think he still believed in God. He would have called himself, and he did call himself, an agnostic, meaning I don't know whether there's a God or not. But I think he believed, and I think he was mad at God. I, I think that, and, and I heard it in his voice when we talked about this, that his family had been so strict without explaining the why, without cultivating a love for Christ in his life, that it had just become about rules and not about relationship at all. Now, don't get me wrong. With a relationship, there are rules. For instance, to have a healthy marriage, I could never cheat on my spouse. So the not cheating on a spouse is the rule. But I don't, I don't cheat on my spouse because of the relationship, because I love my spouse. That's an entirely different thing than just having rules that we have to love God. So my friend's parents forgot to teach him to love God. Keeping unspotted is living as a Christian, but it's not earning Christianity. There must be a love for the Lord. Otherwise, discipline becomes just drudgery. We regret it. No one loved God. And that includes His grace and His forgiveness. Matthew 22, verses 36 through 40 says this, Teacher, which command in the law is the greatest? He said to him, Love the Lord your God with all your heart with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the greatest and most important command. The second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and prophets depend on these two commands. Why? What's the implication of that? The implication is if I love God first, and I love people next, my behavior will change. All the other commands I'll be able to carry out, because they're rooted in a relationship with God. Christians, what I'm saying is don't confuse behavior with transformation. You can get someone to walk a perfect line. There have been atheistic societies that have unbelievable discipline. 
unbelievable, just able to do and accomplish things that, that we in a Western civilization might wonder, how are they so disciplined? And they do it apart from God, but they do it with just discipline, just, just drudgery, just, just a mandate of rules. And what I'm saying is the Christian life is different. Behavior stems out of a transformation that comes through a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. If you're a parent or grandparent in this room, or one day you will be a parent, what I'm saying is you ought to show the, the little people in your life, you ought to show them what a love for Christ is. And out of that comes purity and, and holiness and out of discipline and, and, and following Christ and, and seeking Him and seeking what He wants in your life because you love Him. And Christian, your co-workers ought to see that as well. They ought to see a person that just acts differently, that behaves differently, but not for behavior's sake, but because there's a transformation that has taken place in them. So back to this young lady's question, how do you get your kids to actually like Christianity and not hate it? I hope they see the why behind behavior. I hope they see me as more than someone who behaves, but someone who is transformed by a powerful Savior and the mighty Word of God. And the fourth reason people hate religion is this, when we confuse ritual with worship. When we confuse ritual with worship. This word here is kind of a, I don't know, a controversial word, religion. It's kind of a controversial word nowadays. People do, as a society, just seem to hate it. And yet, if you were to go to the actual definition of the Greek word behind it, you would see the word worship. Uh, and really, a practical, a practical application of worship. That reads entirely different then our society has made the word religion seem like. Think about this now. Let's read this with the idea of worship in mind. If anyone thinks his worship he is worshipful without controlling his tongue, his worship is useless. And he deceives himself. Pure and undefiled religion or worship before God the Father is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained from the world. People hate religion when we confuse ritual with worship. Religion in God's eyes is not just some ceremony that we do. It's worship of Him. When I care for the least of these, if I do it with drudgery, it didn't matter at all. 1 Corinthians 13 talks about that. If you do all these great things but you have not love, it's nothing. I'm not called just to do ceremony. I'm called to worship God. That means that even when I when I do something kind for someone, it needs to be with the eye of saying, God, I do this for you because I love you. I worship you. When I keep myself unstained from the world, it's not just, God, I'm, I'm just, you want me to be obedient? Fine. You're Lord. I get it. So I'm just not going to do the things that you don't want me to do, but I don't like it. And I'd rather do those things. I don't want to control my tongue. I'd like, to, I'd like to tell people and give them peace of my mind. But fine. You tell me, God, that I have to? Fine. I won't, I won't speak my mind. That's not worship. Worship is God. Your way is better. You are greater. I will do the things that you call me to because you are worth it. And you love me. And you love me so much you sent your son to die for me. So let's talk next steps. Christian four marks of true religion. Control your tongue so that you honor God with all you say. 
Live a faith of sincerity, treating others the way Jesus did. Live a life of holiness, but not as a rule-keeping mission, but as a result of a transformed heart and worship God with your actions. In everything you do, even the hard things, do it to honor the Lord. Know the why behind the Christian behavior, the why behind it, loving Him. To a person here who is not a Christian and has not liked organized religion, if you've not liked it because of the people side of things, then then I'll just say I'm sorry for the times that we fail you, but you don't worship us. You don't worship people. You worship God. That's who you are called to worship. And humans are going to fail every time because we're just sinners exactly like you. We fall short, and the amount of times that you've made someone else mad, we've done it too. We've fallen short. We we don't deserve the, the love that God's given us, but he extends it to you. And so maybe the problem that you have, maybe it's been a people problem, and I just pray that you'll put that behind you. That you'll see God's idea for pure religion, and it's not always what we as Christians live out. We ought to, but we don't, and we're going to keep failing. We're going to try to do well, but we're going to keep failing. Don't hold that against God. So maybe if it's not a people problem anymore, maybe it's a Lord problem. That you have not yet wanted to surrender to Him. I'm telling you, organized religion is biblical. It is biblical for us to congregate together. It's biblical to have oversight and and biblical authority and, and partnerships in the faith. Those things are biblical. And so if you don't like it, then then you're not liking something that God likes. In fact, God set up. In fact, God died for. So what God would call you to do today is to surrender to Him. Don't let a lordship problem, meaning you don't want Him to be your master, you don't want Him to be your authority, don't let that stand in your way of recognizing He is your authority. And one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. But if you wait until that day where everyone has to do it, then it will be just in a, a heart that's yielded because of force, not a heart that's surrendered because of love. And God calls you to surrender to love Him because He loves you. And even though your sin separates you from Him, He sent His Son to die in your place, to pay the penalty of your sins. And he asks you to be saved today. Let's pray.